The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. Today we've got the first episode in our new series on Britain's greatest prime ministers. Hello and welcome to our new series profiling some of Britain's most important prime ministers. I'm Matt Elton, Deputy Editor of BBC History Magazine. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first Prime Minister. To mark this seismic moment in the nation's political history, we asked a series of leading historians to each nominate the two leaders that they believe achieved most during their time in number 10. Today, we'll be hearing from the first of those historians, Jeremy Black, who kicked off by choosing that first Prime Minister, Robert Walpole. So the first Prime Minister we're here to talk about is the first Prime Minister, Robert Walpole, who may not be someone that people have heard of. Briefly, to sketch out to start with, what was it that made him great? Robert Walpole was first minister. We would call him Prime Minister. He didn't like that term, but he was first minister definitely from 1721 to 42. You might start it a year earlier with 1720. So he was in charge of British politics for more than 20 years. And the key thing about him was he helped to ground a parliamentary monarchy, a parliamentary state. I mean, if you look back at the 17th century, Britain was the failed state of Europe. 
It had had terrible civil war, not just in England, which we tend to think about, but also obviously in Scotland, Wales and Ireland, uh, culminating um, in the creation of a republic. That then had fallen in 1660. Um, there'd then been fresh chaos at the end of the 1670s, the Popish plot, the exclusion crisis, culminating in 1688 with James II, James VII of Scotland being kicked out in the so-called Glorious Revolution. There'd then been been chaos again in the mid-17-teens, uh, the uh, Jacobite rising of 1715 to 16. And at that point, Britain really seemed a bit of a political basket case. And, uh, you know, at the very end of the 17-teens, you have a political split within the governing Whig party, and you then have the financial chaos and crisis of the South Sea bubble. So somebody who could come along stabilise the situation and give the country over 20 years of stability was really crucial. We tend to underrate that because we're not used to civil war. But actually, if you've got a background of civil war, there's somebody who can stabilise the situation is really important. Somebody like Charles de Gaulle in France, for example. So against this background of a whole lot of different sorts of chaos, it sounds like the country really needed... Um, a figurehead who could steer it through all this disruption. Just to go back on one of the things you talked about, what do we mean when we say the South Sea Bubble? What was that? The South Sea Bubble was an attempt to deal with government debt, which was at an unprecedented high level, but it turned out to be a fraud. And the value of the shares of the... There were very few shares at that stage. The values of the shares of this company, which was holding government debt, rose and rose and rose, and then collapsed. A lot of people lost their money. A lot of people lost their money. So it's a bit like the equivalent of the Wall Street crash of 1929, but worse because it had a much stronger political element. And that created a lot of a lot of problems. But the other aspect, which I didn't really bring out, is we have a new dynasty, a new the a new ruling family in 1714, the House of Hanover, uh, from Hanover, which is a German principality. And shall we say George I um, is not familiar with the ways of British politics. And you need, again, to ground somebody in the system that's going to work. And you, we saw with the Stuarts, with, you know, that the, the problems created with the failure to do that, culminating in the crises at the end of the 1630s, beginning of the 1640s. And to try and ad address that problem is absolutely crucial um, in the early 18th century. To rewind the clock a little bit, how did Robert Walpole first enter politics? And are there any clues in his early life to his later political persona? That's, again, a brilliant question. Sir Robert Walpole, as he became, Robert Walpole was not from the first rank of British society. He was a East Anglian country gentleman, status a bit higher than Oliver Cromwell, but, you know, you could make some interesting comparisons between the two men. Uh, he obviously wasn't a member of the aristocracy. Um, and he goes into Whig County politics in the county of Norfolk, is good at it, 
I think there's no two ways about it. He was able to command the confidence of other country gentlemen, creates a position from which he can get himself into the House of Commons as a very junior member of the Whig system and basically works his way up through hard work uh, being willing to do the hard work, so he has both the ability, uh, capacity, and the willingness, and also other people along the way who might have been difficult, um, falling, you know, dying by accidents. Uh, Stanhope, for example, and Sunderland. I think uh, Stanhope, I think, is a heart attack. Sunderland, I think, is pleurisy. Um, so that's quite important. But ultimately, one of the things about his position is he is a House of Commons man who becomes the great House of Commons political manager. And that has become more important because the Glorious Revolution has led to a situation in which it is now compulsory for Parliament to meet every year and you need Parliament to vote the government's um, finances and that preponderantly is a matter of the House of Commons. We're using some terminology here, Parliament, House of Commons. Um, are the things they describe in any way like what we know them as today? Or is this is this political system completely alien to what we've come to understand it as? Well, that's, again, a fascinating question. The House of Commons is more similar to the House of Commons today than the House of Lords was. The House of Lords of this period um, is, of, is a hereditary house in which essentially you have hereditary landed aristocracy, you have the bishops and archbishops of the Church of England, and you have a small number of Scottish peers who are elected by other Scottish peers. There is none of the kind of situation you have at the present moment, which is an overwhelmingly majority of lifers, as it were. Um, so the House of Lords was totally different. And also the House of Lords had a lot more power at that stage than it does now. The House of Commons, um, well, in some respects, it was very different. It was only men, uh, whereas today, uh, quite rightly, we have a major, though it could be higher, female representation. Um, it... Um, it sat for slightly longer after the Septennial Act of 1717. You needed an election at least every seven years. Now it's five. Or when a new monarch came in. It ha essentially handled a lot of money business. Um, and it didn't sit all the year, but it was the body that was much harder to manage. It was a larger body than the House of Lords. Many of the people there saw themselves as independent. Um, but one factor that is similar to today is that there were two main political tendencies. I mean, today we obviously have the Conservatives and Labour, we have other political parties as well. In the 18th century, they're not quite political parties in the modern sense. You don't have a membership of a political party. You don't pay a party due um, every year. Um, um, and you don't have an elected head of the party. But nevertheless, there are political tendencies, and the two main political tendencies were Whig and Tory. But to complicate matters, both the Whigs and the Tories um, were divided about issues of personality and issues of policy. Now, you might say the same is true of major parties today. Uh, it was certainly true in the 18th century. And what roles had to be combined for Robert Walpole to essentially become prime minister? And um, 
was it more of an evolution of those roles or a creation of something brand new? That's, again, fascinating. I mean, the roles he essentially had to combine were those of being the minister whom the king was willing to trust um, and the minister or politician who could lead the largest political grouping in the House of Commons and somebody who was able to play a key role in getting government to work. All of those were important. On top of that, as the person who led for government business in the House of Commons, he needed to be a good orator. And I think it's worth saying that some of the great 18th century politicians, I mean, another obvious example is William Pitt the Elder, was were great orators. If you look at great British prime ministers, a lot of them have been people who are able and willing to speak on a range of topics, often on very short notice, to handle the equivalent of prime minister's question time. They didn't have that in the 18th century, but they did have adversarial, you know, people rowing with each other. And I think it's no accident that often that element is one that's important when you're looking at who would really good as prime ministers. So there's all these different roles. Now, you ask whether they were an evolution or a creation. It's a mixture. I mean, there had been Lord Treasurers in the past um, who had been influential figures. Um, you can think of people who were the key Treasury men. I mean, or um, the key, an obvious example is William Burley, William Cecil, Lord Burley under Elizabeth I, Robert Harley, Earl of Oxford under Queen Anne. Uh, Harley, of course, um, was somebody who Walpole knew. Um, so there's that element, but again, nobody who had the degree of skill and persistence in the office that Robert Walpole was to have. Number two, um, parliamentary leaders. Yes, there had been people who had tried that role, uh, but again, nobody with the success Walpole had had. So I think what we could talk about is an evolution, but also a creation both by circumstances and by his own ability. Winding back a second to the Treasury point, it's worth bearing in mind that the four 18th century prime ministers who were in for the longest and whom one would generally say were pretty impressive, were all figures who were heads of the Treasury, all of them leading from the House of Commons. So you're thinking of Robert Walpole, uh, who's first Lord of the Treasury from 1721 to 1742. You're thinking of Henry Pelham, who was a protege of Walpole, who's first Lord of the Treasury from 1743 to 1754. You're thinking of Frederick Lord North. Although he's called Lord North, he sits in the House of Commons because his title of Lord is just an honorary title as the son of an Earl. He's first Lord of the Treasury from 1770 to 1782. And you think of William Pitt the Elder, sorry, the Younger, William Pitt the Younger, who's first Lord of the Treasury from 1783 to 1801 and then 1804 to 6. So these men showed that the way to do it was to be able to be a first Lord who sits in the House of Commons. There are first Lords who sit in the House of Lords. Um, they're generally not as got as much political skill or clout. Um, uh, so he sits in the House of Commons and can handle the cut and thrust of parliamentary business. That's very important. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Walpole is a stabiliser, and stabilisers um, are unusual as heroes. Uh, many people don't particularly like stabilisers, but he's probably the most successful stabiliser in British history. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. We started by talking about the sort of whole mass of problems that Robert Walpole faced when he entered office. How did he go about tackling these? Well, I mean... He restructured the government finances, which was very difficult and very complicated and um, uh, involved rescheduling the national debt. And really, that took him a lot of time. He uh, had to face constant rivalry within the Whig Party. Certainly, as late as 1733, there is yet another attempt to throw him out. So those are problems. He had to handle the management of the king. George I was a crabby old man. Uh, I shouldn't say that, probably, because uh, he's about my... (laughs) Anyway, we'll leave that to one side. Uh, And he was then replaced by George II, and it was a very difficult thing to do for a minister to replace, you know, to to handle that transition. Not easy. And part of Walpole's skill was that he was able to do that. Uh, Policies he identified, he tried to keep the country at peace. He identified peace as important in order to control risk, to keep taxation down. He reckoned that keeping taxation down would help to stabilise party differences and in particular would help those people who weren't part of the system feel reasonably prepared to put up with things. So peace was one of his key issues. And number two, although he was a Whig, Um, and was keen on a weak monopoly of power, he nevertheless accepted one of the major Tory planks, which was 
don't further restrict the power and position of the Church of England. Um, so I, he was actually, in some respects, I mean, the Whig Party of the late 17-teens under Stanhope and Sunderland had been quite radical and had been pushing um, in quite a radical direction. Walpole is a stabiliser, and stabilisers um, are unusual as heroes. Uh, many people don't particularly like stabilisers, but he's probably the most successful stabiliser in British history. So he's performing this balancing act across all these different sectors all at the same time. It sounds like quite a job for any single person to take on. Yes, it was quite a job. And if you look at his correspondence, I have looked at it, his surviving correspondence, which is in the Chumley Houghton papers in the manuscript division of the Cambridge University Library. It's covering an enormous range of topics, both the correspondence and the memoranda, from finances and patronage um, to foreign policy. Um, so it's a big range. He worked bloody hard. He had his hobbies. Um, he liked hunting. He liked food. Um uh, you know, he had his hobbies. He'd fallen out with his wife, so he lived with another woman for a long time. When his wife died, he then married her. She then unfortunately died. Um, but, you know, he had his hobbies, but fundamentally his main hobby was being prime minister. And that, again, is quite important. Being a prime minister or, you know, whatever term you wish to use, if it's not something you're dedicated to, will drain you. And Walpole, in fact, his sort of buoyant energy, you know, sitting on the benches in the House of Commons eating apples and, you know, uh, um, and uh, conducting what he called every year his Norfolk Congresses, which is he would go up to the big stately home he'd built with his money um, and he'd entertain people and they'd all drink heavily, eat a lot and go hunting. So he did have his, his you know, his... Uh, as it were, his outlet. But some of the things that people do today, he didn't have to do as prime minister or as an individual. I mean, he never left the country. Um, so, you know, which again is is an interesting thing. So he never accompanied either George the First or George the Second to Hanover. He uh, and that was quite important for him staying in charge of government back in London. So when the king went to Hanover, there was a um, council of regency in um, in England, and Walpole was in Britain. I should say Walpole was always the key player in that. Um, and his, um, I think, his dedication to the job was one of the things that commended him to the kings because in 1727 the new George II wanted to sack him and appointed he tried to appoint one of his favorites Spencer Compton uh, to replace him and it became very obvious that Compton couldn't hack it Compton had to ask Walpole for advice on treasury business and he had to ask Walpole for advice on how to run the 1727 election and after a few days, the king just said, you know, I'm not going to uh, have this mess. We'll have Walpole back in total charge. So that was quite significant. Yeah, managing elections, that was another job the prime minister had to do. And Walpole managed the um, 1722, 27 and 34 elections very successful, successfully. The, by 1741, things were skidding out of control. Uh, the son of the king, Frederick, Prince of Wales, he never became king, was, as it were, declared against his father. The Whig elite was split. 
Um, the, the country was at war, which Walpole had tried to avoid, war with Spain. And he, he fights a general election, which he very narrowly wins, but uh, the, uh, he loses control immediately afterwards, well, within the month of the House of Commons, and he's out within three months. Are there any flaws that you think contributed to his uh, time in office not being successful as it might have been? Walpole, um, Walpole didn't flatter the writers of the age, the literati, and as a result, a lot of them criticised him. Uh, people like Henry Fielding, um, uh, people like Jonathan Swift, and I think it's fair to say that that probably wasn't his high point. He wasn't a great... Uh, he lived in one of the gl- glittering ages of English literature, and he didn't really have much interest in it. But quite frankly, compared to what he did do, I mean, keeping the country neutral during the enormous European war of the mid-1730s was a really valuable thing. And he famously, you know, said to the Queen, you know, Madam, there are many, many thousands. He, uh, I think he said 30,000 who have died this year in Europe and not a single one of them was an Englishman. And if you could ask him a question, what would you ask? Oh, if I could have asked Walpole a question, it would have been, could I come to one of your Norfolk Congresses? I mean, I would have loved that. Oh, the other thing is, one of his great hobbies, great hobbies, was collecting famous works of art. So I would have liked to go to Houghton, have the booze and the uh, the food and then marvellous poems and other letters about the hospitality and go round and see these marvellous paintings, many of which then Catherine the Great bought for the Hermitage. Hooray. Um, Finally, are there any lessons from Robert Walpole's time in office for us today in the 21st century? Yes, I think the major lessons are twofold. One, Um, to look sensibly at your opponent's policies and intentions and inclinations. And if you see things there that seem sensible, don't be embarrassed about borrowing them or stealing them, because you're ultimately there to run the country, not just your own political party. And two, if you go to war, things can very much go wrong. So be aware that if two powers go to war, generally um, both think um, that they are going to win and generally both of them are wrong because even the winner doesn't usually find it's a much harder struggle, a more disruptive struggle than they had thought. So Walpole was proved right in um, staying out of the war of the mid-1730s, and he was proved very right in staying out of the war that began with Spain and then grew to include France, because that war in the 1740s became very difficult for Britain. It provided the Jacobites with the exiled Stuarts with another opportunity. It threatened to unwind what he had achieved. So, you know, those are lessons worth thinking about. I mean, obviously, there are circumstances we're going to talk about Churchill. There are circumstances where you need to fight, but it is best only to need to fight when it is really crucial, not to need to fight to satisfy some egotistical or other foolish drive. So go into war preparing for the worst. Yes, yes, yes. You said it much better than me. (laughs) Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. 
We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on evil women through history. (laughs) 